Hey, everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. I work in a seminary. I went to seminary, like I have a PhD. (laughs) I have like educational background. And I think we undervalue the kind of learning and gifts that are more embodied and less verbal. My guest today is Dr. Bethany McKinney-Fox. Bethany is the co-founder of the Beloved Everybody Community an ability-inclusive church in Los Angeles that just celebrated its one-year anniversary. She's also the author of the new book, Disability and the Way of Jesus, which comes out this spring. Congratulations on that, and thank you so much for being here, Bethany. Thank you. Um, Yeah, it's uh, wonderful to be. When I realized we were meeting for a year, I was like, wow, that's a great (laughs) milestone. So thank you. It's so huge. You have made uh, the point that just speaking of church and thinking about it, that so often people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are considered objects of ministry rather than Mm -hmm. co-laborers in the work of the gospel. Right. Could you say more about what you mean by that? Totally. So um, I feel like for a lot, I mean, this is true. Christians, this has been true for Christians with a number of groups, but um especially people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, um, somehow, especially in the church, it's tended to, and and I don't, I I have a lot of kind of theories of why this might be, but I feel like for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities um, in particular, and maybe it's because we have such a strong emphasis on like intellect and words and in certain kinds of, especially like in reformed traditions, we tend to be really, word-based and belief-based. And so for people who may not work that way, we kind of feel like, oh, our job is to kind of help help them along. And we don't necessarily recognize their gifts as readily um, because they don't come in the form that we tend to normally associate with leadership in church or something like that. And so um, because we think of leadership and gifts as like, oh, you're like a Bible scholar, you can give a really charismatic, articulate, you know, explanation of theology. And because those aren't the gifts that we find um, in many people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, um, we tend to feel like we can't, we kind of just tend to ignore their gifts. And so in that way, we think of them as people we can kind of care for. Um, and in some ways people, adults with intellectual disabilities get treated like children. Um, and we kind of just feel like they exist for us to kind of help them and feel good about ourselves, um, for, for helping them, which, I mean, they need help just like we all need help with different things. Um, but the, the issue really is that they just get pigeonholed into being, um, people who receive and not people who like give and who we realize are people who can be co-laborers in the work of the gospel. Absolutely. And your work, I mean, didn't just start working with adults and collaborating with adults who have intellectual and developmental disabilities did not begin when you founded Beloved Everybody Church. Um, This has been a theme and a commitment um, to your way of living out community in your life. Definitely. talk a little bit about, yeah, like where that came from, when that started, how it's been nurtured. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It really started 
when I was in high school, um, my story is that my parents had gotten a divorce when I was about um, 12. And I'm an only child. And at that point in life, um, you know, my mom, I was with my mom and she kind of was really struggling. And so I think, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really know um, how to cope necessarily super well. <laughs> you're still developing mm -hmm. ways to deal with things. So um, <clears throat> I think my way of uh, dealing with that uh, situation was to really separate my heart and my head and to become like very cerebral and very disconnected from my feelings and emotions. Um, so, you know, fast forward a few years, I'm in high school. Um, I have become a peer counselor. And as part of that, we were, um, you know, if we wanted to, we could spend a day or two a week in the special education classroom um, at our high school. And for some reason, and I really think, you know, in, in retrospect, that it was the work of the Holy Spirit that even gave me that initial push to be interested in that option. Um, so I did kind of start going to the special education class a day or two each week. And um, while I was there, I became friends with a student named David. And he... Um, and so, you know, while at the time I'm kind of in this very emotionally cut off place, he was very emotionally integrated and expressive. So, you know, when he was happy, he would like laugh and, um, you know, smile. And when he's sad, he would cry and snot everywhere and just be <laughs> sad. And when he's angry, he'd like bang the table. You're just like be mad. And I think mm -hmm. there was... Um, you know, a sense of real freedom, emotional freedom that he had that I didn't have at the time. Um, and I wouldn't, you know, as a 16 year old, I wouldn't have been able to articulate the ways that that friendship was healing for me. Um, but looking back on it, it really, I think was an important moment in my life. And I was even just thinking this morning about, I think people who know me would tend to, I think a word I get a lot, um, is like that I'm very authentic or that like I have like a lot of authenticity. Um, and I was thinking about how that has not always been true and that I really do think my relationships with people with intellectual disabilities have taught me how to be authentic um, and, and how important their gifts have been in my life and how grateful I am for that. Um, so... Yeah. And I think the important thing about that relationship with David, that friendship was that it wasn't so, you know, it was helpful to me to receive his gifts, um, but he also received um, my gifts. So it was like, you know, there were certain things that were a struggle for him that I was able to kind of give input on or help with. So it was really like this relationship of mutuality. Um, and so I think because it was, and I think it was important, like what I was saying about, you know, objects versus subjects of ministry. I think right. it was really important that my first real, um, you know, relationship connection uh, with somebody with intellectual disabilities was this kind of in a friendship. And it wasn't like I was there to help him. It really was like we just, me and him and my other friend Julie would just have lunch together a couple of days a week. And it was just like a friendship. And so, I think um, that's why, you know, over time as I continued to develop relationships and friendships with people with intellectual disabilities, um, you know, I got to know people who were complex humans um, with gifts and with 
um, challenges like all of us have. And so I think I began to be, um, I would, I would get very annoyed. Well, at first I just felt like, where are these folks in our churches? Um, number one. And then number two, <clears throat> realizing that our churches are, you know, um, incomplete and less whole without these gifts that to me had been so enriching in my own life. Um, and then also realizing that the ways I heard other Christians, um, talking about people with intellectual disabilities as either like little angels or, um, yeah, just in ways that really made them seem like children or like they didn't have complex personalities, um, or were somehow less than fully human it really like rubbed me the wrong way. So I kind of felt like, look, I really want people to perceive our um, brothers and sisters and, you know, kinfolk with intellectual and developmental disabilities rightly. And um, so that was kind of the beginning of that. And it really is just communities where there are people with intellectual and developmental disabilities present. It just changes how the shape of the community is. It changes the sense of welcome. It changes I can't even describe all the ways that it changes a community for the better. Um, Mm -hmm. If, if they're like truly welcomed and celebrated um, it makes everybody else more welcomed and celebrated too. It's like an incredible gift. Such an incredible gift. You've been talking about the intellectual kind of cerebral um, way of speaking and living out and communicating the gospel and also the gift that David gave to you in that season of your life of being someone who was really emotionally integrated and expressive. Do you feel like not only in um, this sector of the church we're talking about, but also in, um, in general in the American church, that there is a devaluing of the emotionally um, expressive over the cerebral? Do you see that in, without regard to intellectual or um, developmental disabilities, but just in general. Yeah. And I, I think this is, you know, this is, I've, I've tried to be careful because I feel like this is something that's really different depending on somebody's tradition. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been in churches that are super emotionally expressive. So so, Mm -hmm. like Pentecostal churches or um, some like African-American churches that I've been a part of um, have, you know, are, have space in them for emotional expression that isn't always true in, um, in some traditions. So I'm just aware that like, you know, culturally, denominationally, there is a, a, it's, it's a different vibe, but I would say that, um, yeah, like, especially, you know, I work in a seminary, I went to seminary, like I have a PhD, (laughs) I have like educational background. And I think the values or even the idols in an educational system do kind of seep in to all the churches because, um, you know, you will still kind of get a sense of like, Hey, you should really listen to this guy. Cause he's got a PhD or something like that. Um, so there is this value and I'm not, I mean, look, I mean, I have a PhD, like I value education. You <laughs> I worked think, hard for that. Yes, <laughs> I think yes. it's like, I think it's like not a like useless thing, <laughs> but, um, but I do <laughs> think that there's a way that we, undervalue the kind of learning and gifts that are more embodied and less verbal, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, I mean, Mm -hmm. preaching is really like, in most Protestant services, the sermon, and this is true, I think, across 
even in like more um, emotionally expressive settings, the sermon is always like the pinnacle of the worship service. I mean, people will say that it's not. People will be like, no, no, it's the communion or the Eucharist or whatever. They'll be like, that's really the, the point. But when everybody talks about a service afterward, they're almost always going to comment on, on like the sermon um, and like what was said. Yes. And so I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking when we leave the church, a lot of times there's this, there's this line and people kind of beeline to the talker or to the person that offered the sermon. Yeah. And the exchange that happens about the, the sermon itself that it was a great sermon or what you said really touched me, but there's not a lot of space in some of the congregations I've been a part of where people are getting together and, um, expressing in some way, either during the service or after the worship service, that, you know, this is how I felt um, connected to God during these other aspects, like mm -hmm. during mm -hmm. the process of partaking in the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Or in, when we um, did this activity together, this is how God spoke to me. Yeah. It, there's, there's no design for that almost. Right. In a lot of contexts. No, I totally agree. And I think that um, the issue then with that is that um, the being a talker gets like being a pastor gets associated with like being a, a talker. And so being a good pastor means you have to be like a good sermon giver. Cause that is what most people think of as like the highlight of their Sunday morning experience. And so that has been something that, and, and, and the reality is, so two things happen is one, we are definitely like uplifting a certain kind of giftedness as what a pastor looks like. And as, um, you know, what's really, really matters or what a, a leader, a worship leader needs to be like. Um, and then it just creates an atmosphere where, you know, there is a hierarchy of, of gifts and kind of that ability to be articulate and to kind of be charismatic and be funny or whatever your kind of own tradition. I mean, different traditions prioritize different things. Some are like more tell a hilarious story and others are more like quote some fancy theologian but whatever your kind of community is all about that's kind of what people drill into um and so that's actually been a super interesting part of our church is that we don't have a sermon <laughs> at all <laughs> and i think mm -hmm. that's been a really interesting um both for me thinking about am I a pastor? What's happening here? <laughs> am I a pastor if yes. I'm not standing there for like 20 minutes telling them what I think Jesus was talking about? <laughs> like, am I still mm -hmm. a pastor? Um, and are, is what we're doing still like a worship service? What does that look like? So it's been kind of like, it's been interesting both for thinking through my own identity and in like being open to the movement of the spirit in our midst and to realizing that it's actually kind of awesome that I am not the only one who is expected to like bear some theological truth to the community, but it's like there's space for everyone to share at various points. And so the idea is, well, there might not be one sermon <clears throat> coming through me like from the front, but people, everybody is like saying or doing different things or motioning or being expressive in different ways. So people are going to be able to get a word from God um, or have God speak to them or learn something through 
all for through everybody. There doesn't need to just be like me. I mean, I'm kind of like the facilitator, but, um, you know, it's, it's not really accessible for a lot of our folks with intellectual disabilities to have some kind of abstract 20 minute, you know, lecture about the Bible. Mm-hmm. You're just hitting on something so huge, I think, because yeah. I, I think a lot of us involved in the inauguration of new communities, starting new communities are going through that process of like, well, okay, I learned in seminary, um, huge part of my curriculum was in the spoken word mm-hmm. and um, the focus of the sermon on and how to exegete and communicate the text verbally and right. to talk about it. And then that's that's so rarely a part of how communities start. And in your case, um, you're intentionally going about it a different way right. because of a sense that this is not how people are going to be equipped right? and it's not meaningful. So um, that feeling of like pastor associated with being a good talker right. versus pastor, or if any of that's important at all. So you see yourself as a facilitator. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, at this point, that's been mostly what it is, but it's like, um, it's kind of like a pastor in the sense of, you know, I don't know. I, I have, I've been thinking about it a lot. I, I kind of took a while to feel it wasn't until somebody who like came to the church was like, you're a good pastor that I was like, mm-hmm. am I a pastor? What's happening here? <laughs> Cause it's hard <laughs> to feel like what, you know, when you're not doing like, just like what you were saying, when you're not like doing things in the typical, like conventional church model, like I'm not you know, presiding in a super official way, like in what way am I a pastor? What's happening here? Yeah. So do you see yourself like as a pastor? I mean, I think I go back and forth with it. I think I do. And I think especially after having a couple of people call me that I was like, well, if somebody else is saying that I'm being a pastor, then I guess I am. I mean, I've always, you know, like I joke with, um, you know, some friends of mine, because in the Presbyterian ordination process, like (laughs) the last phase is like certified, ready to receive a call. Um, and so I've been in that phase (laughs) for like 12 years (laughs) because, because, and this is like, goes back with the pastor thing. And, and partly it's because I have this value for uplifting the gifts of lots of different kinds of people that I was like, I don't know. I feel weird that I would be like, have this special designation because I have certain, like, because I have a degree or have passed some exams, like that felt kind of bad to me. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's why, I mean, I haven't even, like, it's not like I've been looking for a call this whole time. Like I haven't been. (laughs) And so um, because of this discomfort kind of, I've felt with like, what does it mean to be a pastor versus not? And, um, but I do think in the sense that if being a pastor means that I get to kind of help bring people together and make space for them to exercise their gifts, um, that feels better. That feels good to me. So um, I haven't really seen a lot of pastors lead in that way. Like normally when I think of a pastor, I do think of someone who is like a focal point in a certain way that they are kind of a charismatic figure who, Um, and not in a bad way. I mean, these are people who are gifted and who's, I mean, I've been 
really moved and discipled through sermons in my life. And I've seen less of it being someone who really intentionally is making space for other people's voices. Um, And so to me, it's been hard to kind of feel like what I'm doing is pastoring. I think that it is because especially when I think of like literally like pastor and like sheep and all that stuff, um, I'm like, we are just like a bunch of sheep and I'm kind of trying to like, I don't know. It's hard. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that analogy actually. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) well, one thing that strikes me is that, um, that, that role of like your role is not being conveyed on you through primarily through a certification process, but it's through relationships you have with people, um, and the commitment you've made to them. They're coming up to you and saying, well, you know, you're our pastor or Bethany, she's our pastor because of the experience they've had in church, in your presence. Yeah. And that's, which is a very powerful thing to me. Yeah, me too. And it's, and I'm not sure everyone even would use that language because we have people in our community who are not super church churchy. And so, um, but I guess in terms of what does it mean for me to own that? I don't know. I guess I'm still like wrestling with that. Like, is it important? Like, obviously my 12 year long being certified, ready to receive a call situation doesn't make me like really <laughs> super into jumping in with both feet into this pastor designation. <laughs> but, um, but I am like, yeah, I mean, I'm wrestling with it and thinking about what it means and, and realizing that I wish I had more models for like other kinds of like pastoring um, Absolutely. You know, and I think part of why I'm excited that we're having this conversation is that there, there's maybe you're out there listening to this and thinking like, well, thank God you know, that we're talking about this. Bethany's having this experience and it's something that is noteworthy in the lives of someone who's listening right now and saying like, I see that, um, that sense of commitment and um, that yearning to be a part of a community that has a different take. And, you know, one of the things I appreciate about you is that you're not putting down other ways of um, becoming and living out a pastoral identity. Because I think we know in this movement that there's a mixed economy, like healthy ecosystems uh, thrive when there is diversity, mm-hmm. diversity of models. Absolutely. And we're coming into this place in the church where there's all kinds of models and in mm-hmm. this movement, all kinds of models. But as you said, um, we don't have a lot of this model and it's great that you're out there living this out and talking about it because yeah. many of us are drawn to that through your humility and your attention to doing this in an authentic way for yourself and your community and your calling. Well, thank you. Yeah. I have thought a lot about how, you know, pastoring an established church is hard and starting a church is hard (laughs) and they're just hard in different ways. And at the end of the day, it's like, where's the Holy spirit moving in your heart and where are you being called and follow that, you know, I'd actually love to hear a little bit about you said pastoring a church is hard. Um, Can we talk a bit about, so Beloved Everybody started about a year ago. Mm-hmm. What were you doing two years ago, roughly, mm. as it relates to Beloved Everybody? Yeah, it's a good question. Was there a seedling that, you know, or a notion of this happening? Yeah, that's good. Um, so it started, yeah, like I said, <laughs> back to my really long process of being certified, ready to receive a call. Um, part of that <laughs> means that every single year I meet with my liaison, like a person assigned to me 
to just talk about where I'm at in my journey. And so every year I had to be like, yeah, still plugging along, <laughs> still certified, <laughs> ready to receive a call. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but it meant that I thought about my relationship to ordination and, you know, and I had to keep thinking, well, I mean, part of that time I was doing my PhD. So it's not like the whole time I was just like putting it off or something. I was doing like other stuff, but, um, at yes. some point it had to be like, why am I like so resistant to this ordination thing? And, you know, part of it is that I do have a number of friends, you know, when you go to seminary, you have a ton of pastor friends who are pastoring in established churches and doing amazing work and beautiful work and hard work. And I would just notice what they're doing and what they were spending their time doing. And I was like, man, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> like that. <laughs> and so I kind of just, that's part of why I kept putting it off. And then somehow, I don't know how the conversation came up, but I came across, um, cyclical LA, which is like a, our pres like a presbytery around here, their church starting website. And I was like, Oh, starting a church. And that kind of awakened a little tiny spark in my mind and heart. And, just the idea of, um, cause I think part of what really I was not like, I mean, I've worked in established churches too. I've been on staff before. Um, and I just know how long it takes to change anything. Um, most of the time, <laughs> even the mm -hmm. smallest thing. And I just kind of wasn't ready to do that. That wasn't what I wanted that that wasn't where I felt called or where I felt my gifts were. So thinking about the idea of like being able to lay groundwork from the the ground up, especially when it comes to accessibility, because, you know, church churches and church services are just not created with people of all abilities in mind. So to, to make a church go from like what it's doing now to super accessible, it would just take probably like four lifetimes of mine. And I don't have that much time. I only have one lifetime. So that's why I kind of thought, um, maybe I just need to start from the ground up where we can just model this you know, from the beginning. And it's kind of that thing between, you know, Walter Brueggemann's prophetic critique and prophetic energizing. I think about that a lot. And especially these days, there's a lot of prophetic critique happening, which is super necessary in the church, in the community, in the political sphere, everywhere. But I don't see as much political, I mean, as much prophetic energizing. And that is like where people are building things that we can say yes to, um, and laying out like what is a new vision for how to be in community together. And so I think for me, you know, when you're working in an established church, there's a mix of both. Like you kind of have to say, look, guys, we need to like let this thing die that's no longer working over here. Um, and we need to birth this new thing. But the, it's like a kind of mix of no and yes all the time. And I really felt called to just being in a place of like, yes, and saying, what are we going to build? Like, let's build a new thing. Let's just be in this yes mode for a while. I love that. Um, so this was, you came across this cyclical LA talk about starting a church and kind of awaken in you the yeah. sense that wanting to be a part of energizing something prophetically rather than just critiquing it. Um, what was the next step for you? You're thinking mm -hmm. about it, getting excited. You, you sense something. Yeah. What do you, so, where do you go from there? So I, I got involved with, um, the cyclical LA has like monthly gatherings for people discerning whether they wanted to start a church. So for me, that like process of connecting with other people to process this with was really important. Um, 
And I think also, you know, personally, I just struggle with like confidence and insecurity. And so I feel like having other people, even just on, I feel like on Facebook, I posted like, Hey, everybody, I'm thinking about the possibility of like starting a church. So can you tell me some ch- like church plants around that I could go visit just to get an idea? And a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, you should totally do that. That's awesome. And I think even though in an ideal world, my like calling would come, maybe I would have a deep internal sense of calling within myself that I wouldn't need other mm-hmm. people's push or, or like affirmation. I think that helped me to have people who were like in my community and, and then even in this new collection of people who were discerning being church starters and people in the presbytery who work with church starters to say, hey, we think that this is something that you might be able to do and that you might be gifted for. Um, so so being in that community was like really helpful um, as the next step. And then I did the 1001 apprenticeship over the summer um, and took like that intentional time of discernment. And again, for me, it really was all about community and connecting to other people who were interested in doing this work and sharing our stories and encouraging each other um, and having accountability to like take some next steps and have a coach and all of all those like resources were totally part of the prod, the the journey for me. Yeah. I think your experience in some ways dismisses this notion that like church planting is for those who want to go out on their own pioneer, you know, like renegades who do their own thing. Um, but yours, your process at least was, it was necessary to be in community for you. Absolutely. Uh, it, It was healthier to be in community for you and more generative. For sure. And I think, and it still is, I mean, I still go to like monthly gatherings of people who are starting churches, um, because it is a kind of unique journey. But then it's also like, like, yeah, it's, it's good to know that I'm not like a lone ranger. It's like a unique journey, but it's like a bunch of us are on this unique journey. Um, and it can be, you know, uniquely difficult. So it's nice to have people who can resonate with what the difficulties are, um, and just commiserate sometimes and celebrate each other. But I mean, the commiserating honestly is what I need more often. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, We joke in one of our cohorts that like one of us out of 11 people comes to the cohort meeting and says, I can't do this anymore. I quit. Yeah. And then if it's a good cohort, by the end of the meeting, they're like, okay, I'll do it for another month. Yeah, and exactly. Like the person that quits <laughs> rotates. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> we just, can I just say out loud that I'm done with this? And everyone say, no, you're doing great. You know, keep going. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first gathering of Beloved Everybody, would you tell us what it was like, like the week leading up, how you felt, what you did that first gathering? Yeah, it's a good question. Do you I remember it? Thought about yeah. it. Of course I remember it because it was like so stressful. <laughs> 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 I mean, for me, I think other yes. people were like, didn't, they were like, this is so nice. <laughs> but yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm this so stressed horrible. out. <laughs> but um I mean, you know, there was a lot of prayer going into it. I mean, I think I will say that this like whole journey of starting a church has like underlined my need for being connected to God, like nothing else in my life has before. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I guarantee that the week leading up to it was many times of desperate prayer occurred. And, Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think we hadn't, I hadn't totally figured out where we were going to meet. So we just <laughs> ended up meeting in a park that time mm-hmm. <laughs> and brought some food and um, had just a little gathering. And, you know, it was a little, it, it was nice. I don't know. We acted out a t- scripture together. 
Um, we sang some songs. People brought like photos of themselves. We were trying to really do a mix of, and we still do this, where we try to do a mix of verbal things and ways that people who are not who don't use spoken language can also participate. So we had people share photos of themselves to like get to know each other a little bit. Um, Mm. And then we just did a little bit of music and I mean, it was super like ad hoc (laughs) a little bit. I mean, in the sense of like, Mm -hmm. I mean, we had a plan. It was like, I had a whole thing written out, but um, it was very like, we're just random people in a park reading about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and, you know, one person volunteered to be Jesus, um, somebody with disabilities who was, you know, then enacting compassion. And I think the funny thing is, and this has been true of a lot of the gatherings. So I felt really stressed out, but then there were a few people there who are like, yeah, this is the first time I've been to church in like a few years. And I was like, wow, that's really great that they're calling this church because yeah. <laughs> I'm like, we're just sitting, we're just sitting in the grass in a park and like eating pizza. <laughs> but I'm glad this that, that like they're feeling like this is their return to church. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so um that was like a help. That was nice to kind of feel like I don't know what because you know, because of my own, I really care about it and want it to go well. I can get a little overly fixated on just wondering how things are going or wanting things to go perfectly. And I feel like that's gotten better over time, but definitely in that first gathering, I was like highly attuned to like, is this going well? Are people getting things out of this? Is this good? Is this connecting? Like a lot of like stressful questioning. Um, And it was nice afterward to just have people just confirm that it felt nice (laughs) and that they liked being there and that they felt like they met God there. (laughs) And I was like, okay, (laughs) I guess that's good. Even if in my own mind, I can't always see the beauty of what's happening because I might be feeling stressed or something, Mm -hmm. getting like feedback that people are experiencing something of God in our midst is like, that's great. (laughs) I mean, that's what it, that's the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking of ecclesiology or like what the church is, why it is, what it exists for. Do you, has that first gathering where you heard people say like, I haven't been to church in a while. And then you realized, oh, they're, they're saying that this pizza gathering in the park where we acted out Jesus feeding the 5,000 was church. What would you say church is at this point after doing this for a year? Or do you have a statement that you feel like is the church or what it exists for? I don't, I don't, but I will, you know, my, our mutual friend, Nick Warnes always, uh, like corrects people whenever they say the church and me in like a building, he's like, that's not Uh the church. (laughs) And so like, I think that like, that's been drilled into my head enough that, um, you know, I'm able to know that the church, I guess for me, the church is just a movement. It's, it's what the people, it's like the followers of Jesus following Jesus together. Um, I don't know. I don't have a better definition than that. And sometimes it does mean that we're gathering as a group to kind of come together formally. Um, But I don't, yeah, I think I have thought a little bit about like what makes some gathering church and some gathering not church that feels like church too. (laughs) And like, I don't think I have a good, I, I don't, I don't have like a developed definition at this point. I mostly just have continued to blur all the definitions I've ever scene. (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you about um, the Gospels. Um, You have a new book that's coming out 
um, this spring, which is called Disability and the Way of Jesus. And it's taking a look at uh, the Gospels themselves in um, how how you've been reading them and what it's told you about who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear you talk about um, what you find powerful, um, particularly in the Gospels these days. Like what's speaking yeah. to you as it relates to our lives or your life? Yeah. Well, this is, it's a good question. Cause I was just thinking about this yesterday. I mean, I've been, <laughs> I've been thinking about this for the past many days because my final book edits were due <laughs> on Monday. So <laughs> Check. I've been thinking about it pretty, uh, fervently, <laughs> but, um, I think one thing, and you know, whenever you write a book, it's like what, you know, now that I'm at the point where it's like, I'm not allowed to change anything. And ever again, I'm like, oh no, I want to change this. And why didn't I include this? And so one thing I think I've thought about that I didn't include, like kind of overtly, but that I think about is because the the book is all about Jesus healing ministry. And the reason I wrote it is that um, I love Jesus and I have, my, my life is like utterly different than it would be had I not met Jesus. Um, and at the same time, you know, there's, so he spends all this time healing people. And then I see people in churches today, you know, wanting to follow Jesus and his way of healing. And it ends up really hurting people with disabilities half the time or more than half the time. And I'm like, that seems bizarre that Jesus would have like been healing people. And now people are getting wounded by people who are like saying they're following Jesus. So I wanted to dig in kind of more deeply into those texts to be like, okay, what does healing really mean? What does it really mean to heal in the way of Jesus today? Um, and so whatever, the book goes into all of that. Um, but but one thing I've been thinking about was just about the fact that Jesus did spend so much time doing that um, in a time. So, and this I think is the part that I didn't include, but, you know, have been thinking about is that, you know, at the time of Jesus in the area where he was, there was a lot of, um, political tension and, um, you know, fears or not like different feelings about revolution, fears of violence. There was a lot of just, it, it was a little bit of a tense time politically, let's say not unlike our current time. (laughs) And so that's what I think I've been thinking about is like that they were in this, like, you know, a lot of scholars will talk about how the kind of political atmosphere at the time of Jesus was tense. And then I've been like, well, that's nothing different than now. And, um, but then thinking about, well, what did Jesus like spend his time doing? Obviously he spent his time doing lots of different things, but I'm like, one thing he did spend a ton of time doing was, encountering people who were sick or had different disabilities and offering them healing and welcoming them into the community. And I was like, that's interesting that, you know, cause obviously I, I'm not again, I mean, I think we should be politically involved and work on lots of different levels, but I'm like, I wonder in what way can we think about Jesus's work of welcoming in people who had been excluded from community as an important work uh, as an important part of this like revolutionary work um, in a time of like tension and fear and pain, why does like this work in particular, how is that like speaking to this moment? You know what I mean? How was it speaking to the moment then? Why was that like, and I feel like it goes with the prophetic energizing piece, right? That Jesus is not just saying like no to empire the way that it was, but he was saying, here's like an alternative way of living. Um, 
And so I think that's, that's something that's been like giving me a sense of purpose and life as we're doing what we're doing at beloved everybody church is that like, cause there are times I'm like, what, you know, maybe we should be doing more official things to address like all these 5 million political issues, which, you know, there might be times when we are called to officially act on a specific thing, but more often I'm just like, uh, we're not really addressing a whole lot of things. <laughs> we're just doing mm-hmm. our thing. Um, and sometimes it feels too small, but then I think, well, this was something that Jesus like really prioritized in his time too. And, I think that us doing this work and prioritizing it um, is also doing something um, to kind of say, hey, everybody, here's a different way. We don't need to live in competition with each other. We don't need to live where we're like, you know, keeping some people down or not valuing the gifts of everyone. We can actually live in a way where we like can celebrate each other and recognize each other as beloved and live in that way as community across differences of all kinds. Um, and to actually like embody that, there's something powerful about it that I think can get lost when I'm like, well, what are we really doing? But that I feel encouraged when I think about how Jesus enacted revolution, that that was one of the ways he did it as well. Mm. Do you have a favorite gospel story these days? I mean, I, I love the gospels. Um, and I guess if I could pick one to talk about that, that I think is really meaningful to me or has a turn in it that's really important to me, it would be like Bartimaeus in uh, Mark 10. And that's because, um, you know, when we think about healing stories, we tend to think that it's like Jesus heals this one person. And then what's different is that, you know, because when you even, the, even this story of Bartimaeus, if you like look in your Bible and you know how Bibles have those like headings sometimes of like, what's this next section about? So it'll be like, you know, healing of blind Bartimaeus or something like that. And so for a lot of people, they're like, well, what's this story about? It's like, oh, well, there's this blind guy and then he can like see at the end and praise God, which yes, that is like part of the story. But I think there's so much more to it because it's like, if that's all the story was about, it could be like one verse long. There's no reason to include all this other information. If healing, if the only thing that mattered was some kind of physical cure, But um, in this story in particular, Bartimaeus is like sitting at the side of the road and calling out to Jesus, um, you know, have mercy on me. And then the people who are standing all around are like telling him to be quiet. I think it says they like sternly ordered him to be quiet. So the people are being jerks and, you know, putting, trying to put him in his place and say like, hey, dude, um, you know, shut up. This is like an important guy. He doesn't want to hear from you. But then Bartimaeus Mm -hmm. shouts even louder, um, even though the people are totally hostile toward him. He shouts louder. And then Jesus says, um, you know, bring him to me, to the people. And the the thing that I think is so, I mean, this is like Jesus being Jesus, which is like super like wise, is that by Jesus telling the people to bring Bartimaeus to him, the people had to be transformed because they're coming from this hostile group of people to now Jesus. I mean, Jesus could have gone over himself to Bartimaeus. I mean, Bartimaeus is blind. It might've even seemed like a nice thing for Jesus to do to like, not, you know, to like (laughs) accommodate him. But instead Jesus tells the people like, bring him to me. And so the next, in the next moment, you see the people going up to Bartimaeus saying like, take heart, get up. He's calling you. And I'm like, dang, if you want to talk about what healing happened in this story, like, 
the transformation in the crowd's attitude towards this man is like profound. And I think that when I think about healing, I can't, I mean, gospel writers almost always include how the crowd responds and realizing that how we connect with people with disabilities, you know, them being like, quote unquote, healed, whatever that might look like in our time. A lot of it has to do with how, what, what is the crowd like? How are the people around them receiving them? Um, so the real healing sometimes and the real transformation that has to happen is the people around um, and not just, you know, I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I, this is super powerful. And I think super exciting. Um, this idea that by hearing and enacting something uh, that the transformation occurs. Um, have you guys have you guys acted this story out? We haven't. We haven't acted out. We totally should. We've only acted out one healing story, um, which is the the woman, the bleeding woman. Um, We did that Mm. one a couple of months ago, but um, we haven't done. And maybe it's because I'm so like into the healing stories that I'm like kind of checking (laughs) myself. (laughs) Bethany, we can't do a healing story every time. (laughs) But um but it might be, I mean, that's a good idea. We totally should do it. That's a great idea. I just think what you're doing is so powerful and um, it's moving to talk to you about it. It's moving to hear um, stories from your community and stories from your book, which I'm really excited about. Um, I think it's going to be a powerful, a, a, an instructive piece for all of us as we think about the church and what it's becoming. Well, thank you. I hope so. Is there anything you'd like to, um, to say, or, um, anything you'd like to say to those out here who are listening and thinking about this type of work or thinking about the church? So I think if I could say anything, it's just really to be open to all the gifts that are in your community. Um, and especially to people who might not have, the kinds of leadership skills that have been most uplifted in our communities, um, but to really appreciate and center people and their gifts um, and know that leadership comes in lots of different forms and to celebrate that um, and be open to the voices and leadership of everyone in our communities. Thank you so much, Bethany. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great to talk to you. You can find Bethany's work online at bethanymckinneyfox.com. Her new book, Disability and the Way of Jesus, can be pre-ordered now through IVP Academic Press. Special thanks to the forward-thinking leaders of the Presbyterian Church USA who first launched this movement, and to the Presbyterian Mission Agency and leaders like you for your support. Thank you for listening to New Way, podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. Our producer is Martha Ames Sanders. You can visit our website, newchurchnewway.org. Catch you next time.